So I was screwing around online and I found this picture of this young girl and it's got these really creepy eyes and they're this great shade of blue, you know, like Paul Newman blue. And I wasn't sure what to think of it because it's like this blurry kind of computer created thing. And then I did a little reading about it and it turns out that this thing is a self-portrait that was done by this young Japanese girl or Asian or something. I want to say Japanese, but I think it might be Korean. I'm not sure. Anyway, if you look at this thing, it's like she's got this weird look on her face, kind of Mona Lisa-like, but more of just like haunted, kind of there, but maybe kind of CW looking chick. I don't know, really freaking weird. Anyway, supposedly this chick did this self-portrait and she put it up online because that's what you do with stuff now. Everything's goddamn online. It's freaking crazy. And she supposedly killed herself, which I don't know, man, that's freaking terrible. Supposedly that's real though. And there are some other places that say that this picture has some kind of power over you that you can like look at it and the eyes will change or you go crazy if you stare at it too long and you'll kill yourself if you stare at it too long. I don't know. It's weird though. You look at it, it's got this weird green background and I'm not sure to think about it. I mean, I don't think it would make you commit suicide, but maybe you would. I, I don't get it. I really just don't fucking get it. The other version of the story that I've heard is that if you look at it for a while, that she eventually turns into some kind of mean kind of smirky looking thing and that she's covered in this mist and it's all death and terribleness and I don't know and I I just don't know I mean I see this stuff online and you kind of wonder like what's real and what's not have you heard the story of and written on the wall and everyone blood. has the different stories of oh this happened to my brother this they start telling you stories of the old country. there was this girl it was back when we were little kids to find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in american war. a story behind the story because it's just a story hello and welcome to the just a story podcast i'm jake and i'm sam and we're here to tell you a story each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. And as always, we want to take a brief second to thank all of you for listening. Thank you. We can't believe you're still here. What are you doing here? Don't you have anything better to do? Just yep. kidding. We know you. We know. We get it. If you're like me, you are doing that better thing while you're listening to this podcast. So wash those dishes. Wash, wash, wash. Drive home. Commute, commute, commute. This and is a special cheer section. <laughs> oh, watch out for that car. Okay, okay. okay. Right. You're okay? Don't listen to intently. Okay. okay, look, put your mom arm down. Get your eyes on the road. Stop fidgeting. You don't need to check Twitter right now. But when you do, you can feel free to reach out to us at Just a Story Pod. And this week, we're going to be posting lots of pictures. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> because today we're going to be talking about some really interesting stuff. I think it's interesting. I mean, this is kind of the intersections of two of the things I find most interesting about people. That would be death and art. Yeah. Isn't that what everyone finds interesting about people? Two of your favorite things. Yeah, kind of. I'm going to sing like Julie Andrews any second now. But we start off this episode with the telling of... A cursed painting story. Dun, dun, dun. And these cursed painting stories have been around forever. 
Yeah, like as long as paintings have been around, which is literally since from before recorded history. Well, they are the first recorded history. Well, before writing, you know what I mean. Don't be an asshole. We start off with a very modern telling of this, one that can be considered a creepypasta because it did originate from online. As you were telling me, it was one of the first like major write-ups in mainstream media about internet horror. Yeah, when we were researching the creepypasta episode, New York Times did an article about creepypasta, I think it was in 2010, 2011, and this was the image that went with it, and it is the Japanese suicide girl painting. When I hear suicide girl, I don't think about this painting. You may not want to Google Japanese suicide girl, actually. Just don't do it at work. You may want to. <laughs> Just don't do it at work. Um... So this painting is an image of a girl's face. And it's amazing all of the feelings that people have projected onto this. Now, I think some of that is trumped up and probably the original posting. But I I do believe that people had sincere reactions to the painting. It's preset. You're primed, I guess. Yes. You're primed to have that feeling of sadness. Right. When you hear that this girl posted this painting just before committing suicide, you are going to project feelings of sadness and desperation onto the image. And I think that the image serves as a very effective mirror for that kind of melancholia. And it is a very like soft, pretty picture. Very ethereal. A young girl. People have supposedly killed themselves after viewing this image. It's very gloomy Sunday in that way. That's the Hungarian suicide song, which we'll probably be doing in a future episode. Yes. Yeah. And one thing I find so interesting is they're like, oh, if you watch, her mouth begins to morph. And it looks like she's smirking. That's something you always hear. Makes me think of Mona Lisa. Right. Well, I would argue, I've got my junior art historian pants on today. I would argue that that is because the artist, who is a man named Robert Chang, used a technique called sufmado. That's a fancy word. It is a fancy word. Because I'm just oozing pretentiousness tonight, I'm going to read you a haiku about the definition of this fancy word. That's fitting. Without lines or borders, in the manner of smoke, or beyond the focus plane. So what do you think that that is? Not science. You explain it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So this is a technique that's achieved by layering a variety of different colors of paint or if you were using uh, one media like charcoal or pencil, it would be a variety of pressures over and over again to create a very soft focus effect that gives shape and shadow, but no line. So our eyes will, in attempting to focus on, for example, the smile on the Mona Lisa, our eyes want to create a line there because we know a line is supposed to be there, but there is actually a variety of lines and different colors and values. And so as we try to focus, the expression seems to actually move. It's an optical illusion created by varying value and color. Okay, because our eyes are adjusting. Right. Constantly adjusting and trying to find a focal point that does not exist. Okay, that's interesting. Well, this was done, like you said, by an artist, and it was not a suicidal Japanese girl. I'm kind of okay with that. That makes me good. Good. One less suicidal Japanese girl in the world is a good thing. And so he's a Thai artist, Robert Chang, and he did it for a animated movie he was working on called Tolarian Sky, and this was one of the princesses in the movie. 
She um, is beautiful. So it was done in Corel paint. Okay, so I would argue, as someone who's worked both with digital and with physical media, that that effect is much easier to achieve using digital production means. Because you're able to go back over the same area a number of times and you don't have to wait for paint to dry, et cetera, et cetera. It's easy to change colors and like smudge and move. It, it's just a lot more feasible because most people will argue that no one has perfected or really done a proper Sifmato smile since Da Vinci. Right. That's why Mona Lisa's smile is so famous. Right. So something like Mona Lisa's smile is known by everyone the world over. Right. And just shows how pervasive art can be that everyone from the least cultured person knows this. Right. And even the most cultured people are still writing papers and squabbling and arguing. I mean, like, it's alluded to in everything from Sunday funny papers to New Yorker cartoons to classroom debates at the highest level of education. I would argue, again, with my junior art historian pants on, that art is one of the modes of storytelling that is as ubiquitous as folklore. Yeah, and when we say art, we include more than just paintings. Of course. Art has serves an anthropological function. It is a part of culture, and it is something that anthropologists study, as well as art historians, as well as professors of English, and etc., I looked up like the anthropological definition of art because that really represents an intersection between like the media itself and the study of the history of production and cultural implications of what's been created. So art is, as defined by anthropologists, objects or behaviors that have an aesthetic or semantic attribute that are representational or created for presentational purposes. It also includes products or activities created and defined in relation to the cultural context of the producing society. Art should be studied in its own cultural context, and when it is, it reveals the relationship between the art, form, and other aspects of the life in any given society. Art is not a phenomenon, but a concept that is an integrated part of a given society's cultural experience and expression. So th- that definitely is a great definition of what art is, encompasses almost everything. Art is a major part of any society because it is used to convey meaning. Um, It is used to represent a single person's experience. It's also used to communicate cultural norms, commemorate cultural struggles. It's used to impart knowledge to future generations, court history, make important statements about the cultural character of people. It's a means for doing a lot of cultural work. So whenever I think of an important work of modern art, something that's happened in the last century or so, that has led to suicides, I think of one of your favorite movies. One of my favorite movies? Yeah, The Deer Hunter. I love that movie. Oh, it's a Vietnam movie. It is this uh, Christopher Walken's in it, which is really all you need to know. A serious role. It is about these guys that go to war and come home and try to adjust after the war, and they can't. But the most important scene in the film, the the one that sticks in people's minds, the jarring scene. That's the Russian roulette scene. This is one of the only times I've ever cried in public because of a movie. I was in my film study class when I was a freshman in college, and I 
had like a visceral physical reaction to the scene was act i was actually sick um, and had to leave the classroom and vomited and came back and finished watching the movie it's intense to put it mildly they've been taken prisoner and they're sitting around with their guards in Vietnam, and I believe it's De Niro and Walken in the scene. And so they're in the tent with their guards. They've been taken prisoner, and there's a gun on the table. And despite the language barrier, it's very quickly communicated to them that what they are to do is to spin the chamber that has a single bullet inside. They will all take turns putting the gun to their head and pulling the trigger. It is one of the most, not to use the word again, but visceral, affecting deeply psychologically disturbing scenes I've ever seen. They do such a fantastic job of communicating fear and hopelessness and just sort of seems so desperate. It's just absolutely desperate and sad. And these Vietnam War movies came out several years after the Vietnam War was Right. Done. There was like a statute of limitations on it, and then everybody did it. You had Apocalypse Now and Platoon and Deer Hunter, etc. All in a rash. But they were done because there were so many people struggling with coming back from Vietnam. Understandably so. It was a very bloody war. I mean, there were guerrilla warfare for the first time ever, and they didn't believe in what they were fighting for, and people were divided about the justness of the war. And they were not celebrated as heroes as the men from World War II had been when they came home. A lot of people were very angry that they'd gone. So it was a hostile environment. Yeah, and so this movie came out in 1978. As we were saying, it's just a very dark movie. And the feelings you described really hit home with a lot of people. By 1981, there were 28 shootings and 20 confirmed Russian roulette deaths in the U.S. to people that had seen the film. Oh my God, that's horrible. And I can understand it. I... I was affected, and I've never been to Vietnam. Yeah, and I would never, ever, ever claim that the movie caused them to kill themselves. No. But it's something that definitely hit home with them. Well, I have a question. I think it's medical. If they were suffering from PTSD, could this have been a trigger? Oh, for sure. Okay. 100%. So, yes. So perhaps we don't go see war movies if we think we might have PTSD. Just, just if you're a listener... Good advice. But we don't have evidence that that's what it was. And there have been other cases of it since then. In 2000, two teenagers that had seen the movie played this game. And one person died because of it. Oh my god. I'm pretty sure they were not Vietnam War vets. Oh my god, that's terrible. And so this makes me think of another movie that's been linked with violence inspired by the film. And it's my favorite director, Stanley Kubrick. Okay. And his film, A Clockwork Orange. Okay, Clockwork Orange was deeply disturbing for me. Like, I had, a, I had a hard time watching it. I adore Kubrick. I think his filmmaking is provocative and very evocative of emotion, I guess. Like, it, it definitely instills a certain feeling in the viewer. And he is the head of the emotional fascist. He can make you feel any way he wants you to. And he wanted me to feel disturbed and fucking crazy by the end of that movie, apparently, because I, I couldn't make it. No, for sure. And it's based on a British kind of dystopian novel um, by Anthony Burgess. Mm -hmm. And it's a fantastic novel if you're into science fiction, because he creates this entire 
lingo. It's a great book if you're into linguistics as well. Yeah, because it's an entirely new like form of speaking, and that that comes across in the movie as well. But it's about you know Alex, and he, so he's a young nihilist and his gang of droogs. Yeah, and if you've seen Big Lebowski, it's kind of like that. Don't worry, they're nihilist. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's nothing like the Big Lebowski. They go out and just commit ultraviolence, as it's called the book in the movie, just for the sake of it. Very Leopold and Loeb. Yes. Like in one scene, they are attacking one guy and Alex starts like singing, singing in the rain, which was completely not scripted. Well, that's disturbing. And after they filmed it, he, like Kubrick was like, "That's amazing," and immediately like got the rights to it. <laughs> but it comes to a disturbing twist. If the movie is not disturbing enough, you know, it also has the famous scene where he's strapped into the chair, his eyes are forced open, mm-hmm. and he's forced to watch all this violent imagery while he's made sick mm-hmm. to like vomit and right, like pain. aversion therapy. That's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the end, he realizes kind of his problems and things like that. And there's a slightly negative, hopeful ending ish. Like if we wrote one, if we yes. wrote a hopeful ending. Exactly. Okay. But after this movie came out, there were several kind of copycat violent attacks related to it. Like a 16 year old that was dressed like Alex, which you could think of that famous, just all white with the bowler hat. Mm-hmm. He savagely beat and kicked a 15 year old. And there was another 17-year-old Dutch girl who was gang-raped by a group of Lincolnshire boys as they all sang, Singing in the Rain. God bless. And so, like you're saying, this is a really visceral film, but it's something that's obviously misconstrued by the viewers. Right. The intent is not to incite violence. It's to rebuke the pointlessness of violence, correct? Wouldn't you say that there is, like... It does not have the agenda of making violence look glamorous. Like, he's definitely punished. Oh, definitely. And, yeah. like, the sex scenes are not, like, hot. They're, like, really disturbing. You know, like, there's one scene where he's, like, fantasizing. And he's just, like, kind of getting off to seeing himself as Jesus being crucified. And, like, it's really interesting. Yeah, that's the word. But so after all this violence came about, people were calling for it to be banned and pulled, and Kubrick was even brought in to discuss it. Mm-hmm. And later in an interview about this, he had some great quotes, and he said, No one is corrupted watching a clockwork orange any more than they are by watching Richard III. The film has been accepted as a work of art, and no work of art has ever done social harm. Though a great deal of social harm has been done by those who have sought to protect society against works of art which they regard as dangerous. There's always been violence in art. There's violence in the Bible, violence in Homer, violence in Shakespeare. And many psychiatrists believe that it serves as catharsis rather than a model. I think the question of whether there's been an increase in screen violence, and if so, what effect that has had, is to a very great extent a media-defined issue. So, you know, he's just calling out the media for just blaming the society's problems on movies and things like media, which obviously that is not the cause. I mean, as long as there's been pop culture and media to comment on it, people have been finding ways to blame it. I mean, Jesse Pomeroy is a famous case, 14-year-old boy who committed a couple of murders like in the 1800s. Mm, I'm not certain of the date, but in Boston, his 
media swarm was about, oh, it was the pulp novels. And we saw the Wortham trials and comics. And we saw, you know, the outcry against heavy metal with Columbine. And we saw... Video games. Video games were the devil for a while. As long as there's mass culture or high culture that is perceived as threatening, people are going to blame it for the actions of minors usually but even if we can find a connection and it gives anyone an excuse the media is more than happy to do it sure can you think of any other examples related to music oh oh manson yeah okay but that's really not the media (laughs) like let's be fair no media person could have come up with something as elaborate and just fucking bananas as what charles manson himself told his followers he believed that the white album was a special like memorandum or message encoded message from the fab four of course and he believed that helter skelter was a race war it wasn't oh uh, (laughs) not that i know of as far as i know paul mccartney wrote that song after reading a review of the who not actually hearing them and thinking, hey, that sounds cool. And, like, emulating what the review said that they were doing. And so great, I didn't know that. I know lots. Useless, useless things. I mean, like, everything from Honey Pie. You remember Honey Pie? Yeah. Um, it, which is, like, about, like, come back to where you belong. You went to Hollywood. It's like, oh, the Beatles want us to go to London and meet them there. What about, how about we do it in the road? That was a suggestion for how to commit the murders. Oh, shit. <laughs> but it was really about monkeys. <laughs> right. And Piggies was um, about the... Cops? No, not really? it was not cops. It was the white people, like rich white people were Piggies. And Revolution was like, it's time to start it. Like everything on the album had some... Like he, he systematically worked through. He was very thorough and gave this talk to his followers who were all fucking high on acid and told them that it was time for Helter Skelter and blah, 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 and Sharon Tate and others. And were, that's a whole other episode. Yeah, but yeah, Charlie Manson definitely, definitely used art to create havoc. But that's probably the most, like, direct. I see the messages in the art and I'm going to go commit the murders. But I don't know if Manson really bar- bought into it or if he was just really good at convincing people he did. Oh, and Manson didn't kill anybody. Not then that we know of, but we think maybe before the Tate murders, there were some some incidents. Well, so I've got one that is linked in a lot of ways. Tell me. So Mark David Chapman. Okay. Uh, This young fellow was a big fan of the book Catcher in the Rye. uh, Yeah. Okay. Which is in and of itself an extremely hotly debated topic. The book has been banned many times, mm-hmm. has been touted as a great example of how terrible the next generation is. Yeah. Which it always is. The next generation is always the apocalypse. But Mark David Chapman was really kind of a disturbed individual, but he loved Catcher in the Rye. Okay. And he really identified with the main character, Holden Caulfield. And Holden Caulfield's a young guy, and he's very kind of like anti- Phony, into establishment, like kind of ever, like what you would think of when you think of like a young guy when the book was written. And he loved the Beatles. But then he converted Christianity. Uh huh. And he had a big problem with John Lennon 
talking about how much he didn't believe in Jesus and you know, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus and felt that he was a big phony because he'd always talk about imagine no possessions, but he was living in a high rise, riding around limos, all of his money. So he was very perturbed with John Lennon. So he decided that he was going to kill several people that he felt really fit that image of this kind of like phony pop culture people. Okay. And so he got a gun, got ammo, went and waited outside of John Lennon's apartment. No, this is going nowhere good. Well, and as John Lennon came out, he called out to him and shot him several times and killed him. No. As On December 8th, 1980, in front of his apartment in New York. As they were waiting for the police to arrive, he stayed at the crime scene reading Catcher in the Rye. And in his copy of the book, he had written, This is my statement, and signed it, Holden's, Caulfield's name, the character in the book. It's just so disgusting. Yeah, and then whenever he was on trial, he read a passage from the novel to address the court during his sentencing. Nobody wanted this. Like, Salinger didn't want this. No. Salinger just wants to be left alone. Lennon never wanted this. The Beatles never wanted it. Like, it just... To idolize someone and then to attempt to so literally speak for them. This is my statement? How dare you? Oh, he even wanted to change his name to the character's name. Do you know who the next person he was planning on killing was? I don't know how you... I mean, like, where do you go from John Lennon? David Bowie. Oh my god, I really hate this guy! He had front row seats to the Elephant Man the next night to which David Bowie was performing in. I really hate this guy. I hate him so much. I'm so angry right now. I laugh when I'm angry. How in the hell is someone else a phony if you are pretending to be a fictional character? Okay, these are examples of people, like, pulling messages from culture, from art, that may or may not, probably not, leaning toward not, have been intended by the author or artist. For a very long while, there have been associations between art and violence. Uh, I mean, as Kubrick stated, you know, there's violence in the Bible, there's violence in Homer. But when would you say that murder came to be an art in and of itself? Well, murder was really important whenever you had the martyrs. Depictions of people being martyred. Okay, Catholic bells, what's martyred? Yeah, yeah they're ringing. So, you know, a martyr is someone that is really holy mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church, in this instance, could be any religion, where they were killed for their faith. It seems that people in olden days just could always come up with great ways to kill people. Yeah, very elaborate and creative methods and machinations of death. And so we definitely need to illustrate them. Right. Well, and so also really important to remember there's a illiterate society so Mm -hmm. the reason that all the churches always had paintings and things like that was that was the way they were teaching people that's the way they were teaching bible stories that's the way they were teaching the traditions of the church such as martyrdom 
And so you can think of things like St. Sebastian and him being tied up and pierced with tons of arrows. Right. And a lot of the female saints um, had really graphic martyrdoms. Like St. Agatha, there are a lot of pictures of her with breast on a plate, etc. As art became institutionalized by things like the Catholic Church for these graphic depictions of martyrdoms, etc., became like a a substantial, sustainable position for people to fill. You know, if if we need pictures of people being murdered, we're going to need artists to paint that. Well, the church was the only people that could afford it. Right. So they could afford to pay people to come paint these martyr scenes. So some of the earliest, like, high art commissioned paintings are very graphic and very violent. So one of my favorite, favorite painters of ultraviolence, <laughs> if, if you will, is uh, Caravaggio. He's your favorite painting of everything. Yes. But he would paint these scenes that were just very much like in your face. Like they kind of broke the fourth wall, if you will, and like came out and were life size. And they, they look like images like from The Sopranos or something. Like they're very dark. They have kind of an Annie Leibovitz style to them. Extreme chiaroscuro, which is the contrast of light and dark. Very prominent light sources. But the way that man paints blood, oh my God, it is gory. You've probably seen the famous painting of Medusa's head. Right. And that is a prime example, although that is mythological and less biblical. But like the violence, the Mm -hmm. goriness, the blood. Yeah. And that is a prime example of how he renders things. Um, You've probably also seen Judith um, beheading Holofernes. And that is one where it's gory. He also painted um, one of his only surviving self-portraits is his head, his severed head, as the face of Goliath and a painting of David and Goliath. What would Freud say about that? Well, actually, there's been a lot of writing on that. Uh, a lot of times beheading in art is related to castration, and it's noted that Caravaggio was a pretty openly homosexual man. He really only took male lovers and things like that, and so there's some thoughts that that has to do with like castration and like failing to fulfill his role in the society of his day. Way cool rabbit hole to go down if you're feeling like that might be what you want to do with your afternoon. I highly recommend it. But he was a painter who really used violence and really got his point across. So you're right, that's like Baroque art. So, But when did art go from being very kind of depictions of biblical or martyrdom violence into being something else? Well... There are a lot of answers to your questions. As recently as, you know, 30 years maybe behind Caravaggio, you have people like Artemisia Gentileschi, who's a female painter, uh, who's considered a Baroque master, which is very unusual. And she was actually raped by one of her instructors and took him to trial and was tortured during the trial um, to try and make sure that she was telling the truth. And one of the devices they used to torture her was like something they put on her pinky finger and tightened over the course of the trial to see if she would flinch under under duress and recant her statement. But she sort of politicized her art after that and started painting these really kind of revolutionary images empowering women. And her women were very strong and typically kind of overpowering men and things like that. So you have that kind of political shift as early as that. But then you have the real movement into the political sphere with David's uh, painting The Death of Marat. Okay, I love David's paintings. They're all like 10 stories tall. He's yes. extremely detailed. And very lifelike. 
Yes, and I, so I know he worked during the French Revolution. Yes, and, and you know he was in Le Miserables. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh Jackman says no. He wrote the song. <laughs> Red, the blood. Red. <laughs> no, but yes, he was uh, active during the French Revolution. You might know his Napoleon and the Storming of the Bastille or Le Petit Muse. He painted political secular subjects and he painted the death of french revolutionary marat who was assassinated by charlotte corday in his bathtub as one might expect a christian martyr to be painted well and that is an important point that he was a french revolutionary because there was a big turning away from the church mm-hmm. yes absolutely and so it was a statement to paint a secular figure in the way a martyr was painted and it also elevated his status because it was something that was readily understood. The iconography was there, the the lighting, the mood of the painting, everything about it, the kind of sweet expression on his face, everything suggested that this was a sacrifice. This was a sacrifice for a cause, and it became a rallying point. And I mean, this is like, this is key. If you love true crime, this is key, even, because... This is the first, like, major work created to depict a current event in real time. I don't know how he did it as fast as he did it, but, you know, it was a comment that was received by the audience who was actively participating in the movement in real time, I guess. So he was able to capture that violent moment Mm -hmm. in a very classical way, but Mm -hmm. a secular way. Yes. And use that violence to push his cause forward. Absolutely. At this time, there is a more pervasive interest in secular art. You have things like the guillotine portraits that are being done, where people are standing at the base of the guillotine with their sketchboards and quickly, as quickly as possible, drawing the heads of the people who have just been executed. And selling them. And selling them to people who are standing there waiting to buy them. And you also have things like uh, Garakolt's Raft of the Medusa, which is a horrible story about a raft that's cast off a ship, castaways out in the middle of the ocean, everyone's dying, it's all terrible, they're eating each other, things. But he used reference from the Paris morgue, which was a public site at this point. Anyone could go. Yeah, you could just go hang out. And go hang out, and he did. And, and people he, did. And he brought things back to his shop, his uh, his studio, and used, like, arms, severed arms for reference, and, like, rotting corpses to monitor decay and bruising and things like that. And he concocted this gorgeous, in that it is incredibly detailed and meticulous, beautiful work, horrifying in subject matter, you know, multi-figure... Raft of the Medusa, real time, again, very quick turnaround on this thing, depiction of this tragedy that was, you know, of course, ascribed to neglect and excess on the part of the government and not taking care of people and blah, blah, blah. But Garakult really kind of integrated very literal interactions with death and very realistic depictions of decomposition and just gore into his painting and this is all happening around the same time like we're really starting to want to get it right and we're wanting to showcase death to make statements and to make them you know make our cause more valid get our point across we're using violence to get our point across 
And this continues. You have things like uh, the 3rd of May by Goya. This, you know, very political painting of a man being executed by a firing squad that you know becomes a rally for that cause. People began to recognize that statements didn't have to be literal. They could be more figurative. And it was still just, if you could evoke the feeling of violence, if you could evoke the feeling of desperation, whatever you put into the art, people would perceive. And it could become a touchstone for a movement. Yeah, and those definitely became important ideas as art moved forward into its new forms in the late 19th and 20th century. Right. I mean, even things like Warhol's depictions of race riots, you know, that's very modern. It's very recent. Or, you know, the photograph in Ferguson of the man throwing the smoke bomb back. That's something, you know, these images, these images, these iconic images that we associate with various political movements and that really capture our attention and come to symbolize the movements themselves are art, but they are violent. Right. Violence and art is such an important element and what it represents. And I think that there's something to be said for the space that art creates. Art, like play, like games or jokes we've talked about before, you know, kind of occupies this the sphere of culture that is set apart from everyday life. We have permission to do things like bring arms home from the morgue in Paris if we're working on a giant painting. It gives us some kind of leniency. The rules of society, polite society, might not apply as much to us in that moment. It makes me think of some of the more modern performance art pieces that have occurred where the artist allows the audience to interact with them and that becomes the art. Right. There was a woman named Marina Abramovich who did a performance art piece called Rhythm O where she set out a table in front of her and, you know, there were things like thorns and guns and glass and knives and lipstick. Just for normalcy's sake. There's also lipstick. But people were allowed to approach her in this this space of art, the space of play that she had created that was set apart from normal rules of society. And people were instructed not to interrupt no matter what anyone was doing and to just allow them to approach her with any object on the table. And so during the course of her exhibition, someone cut her throat. They pressed a thorn into her stomach. They took a gun, loaded a bullet into it, put it in her hand and had her point it to her throat to see if she would resist. Did she? (laughs) She didn't resist. Wow. That's commitment. It's also crazy. It is crazy pants. Don't do that. The point is that, yeah, she's nutso for letting people do this, but these are normal folks that have walked in off the street. And because of this space that's set apart for creating art, they're like, how far can I push it? And they go with her into that crazy place into that space that allows for such violent acts to occur and for that to be the norm? I mean, people did other things. Like, people looked into her eyes and people petted her hair. I mean, people did nice stuff, too. But the violence, because of what the objects that she'd laid out on the table, what she'd put on the table, literally, did come up. And it did actually provoke some people to do things that they probably wouldn't have done in normal everyday life. Right. She was allowing it. She was inviting it even. 
And I think that it created a really interesting mirror. Like, yeah, I'm going to be crazy letting you do this, but what does it say about you that this is what you want to do to me? And that that's very powerful. I think it is crazy pants. And I would, if I read about it, oh, upcoming event, I'd be like, ah, yeah, I'm good. I'm going to go eat chips. And But what does that say about people and art and the craziness it can make? Well, when I think about violence and art, you can't help but think about what violence leads to about death. Oh, yeah. Death and art's like a given, right? One of the very modern artists that has really made well, a huge fortune off of, but <laughs> also huge statements about this is Damien Hurst. Oh, that's the guy that pickles things. He does that. He does other things, too. Pickles. He's a big pickler. But he really does kind of have this obsession with death and also like just medical and scientific apparatuses. In his late teens, he was very influenced by Francis Bacon. Oh my God, Francis Bacon. Like if you've ever been in an art museum and walked by and seen something out of the corner of your eye and gone, <gasps> felt like you're going to hyperventilate because it was so terrifying, but it was just like a portrait. That's probably Bacon. He, it's nightmare fuel. It's nightmare fuel. Absolutely. But inspired by him, he also amassed like large collections of pathology books. He especially liked books showing burns because of this, this hideous subject matter. But also the pristine, detached photos. And he said the books contained delicious, desirable images. He would often go to the morgue mm-hmm. and look at bodies and draw them to try to understand a lot of these ideas. Uh, but he is, he's very interested in confronting death mm-hmm. and has kind of this gleeful attitude towards mortality. One story I always remember when I think about Damien Hirst was in the book Severed, The History of Detached Heads, which is excellent. If you haven't read it, you should totally pause. Yeah, go read it. And then consider what that says about you as a human being that you just did that and come back and join us. <laughs> now that you're joining company that has also read that, we can continue. So it's about him, you know, like going to the morgue when he's a kid and like taking a picture with a cadaver where he like puts his face down right by the cadaver and smiles and is like, awesome. Yeah. And people see that image and they're like, oh, Damien Hurst is a nut job. He's always been like in love with death and things like that. Yeah. And they're so wrong. <laughs> I wouldn't say they're wrong, but when he talks about it, he's like, I wasn't smiling because I was excited. I was scared to death. Mm-hmm. No, he was. And that's fair. And I don't know how one does pose for photos with the dead. I always think about when we went to Ground Zero in New York and we saw people like taking smiling selfies at the monuments. Yeah. And going like, oh, I know they don't mean it, but ah. Yeah, it's just your natural inclination. Like, I'm going to take a picture of cheese. Yeah. You're right. He does do these like pickling of animals and things like that. And the thing that made him really one of the many things that made him famous is his piece called The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living. And what it was, was it was a tiger shark that was preserved. Did it die of natural causes? Nah. In, (laughs) In formaldehyde and just encased in this large box, just kind of. Like he's swimming almost. Mm -hmm. And you can see it from all sides. If you're looking at it from straight on, it looks like it's coming at you. He later did another one called Death Explained, which was a mature tiger shark that was bisected longitudinally and placed in two separate boxes 
And you can even like walk between them. And I mean, it really is so interesting, but my mind hurts my brain. <laughs> well, I mean, he's talking about you confronting death. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a killing machine. And when you see it, you can't help but just have that moment of, oh, mm-hmm. oh that thing is going to eat me. You think of Jaws or <laughs> something like that. Someone writing about him said there's a fascination with the physical presence of death and a reflexiveness on the part of the viewer regarding his detachment from the dead thing. So you can feel distinctly uncomfortable about feeling comfortable in the face of death. And I do think that art has danced on the head of that pin for millennia. Like, I think that art has explored death and explored what it means to be comfortable with death and explored what it means to be repulsed by death ad nauseum. You know, he's talked about that imagery of death is really the hardest thing that we can confront in life. Because we know it exists, we know it's there, but if you start thinking about it in respect to yourself, it really puts a different spin on it. Mm-hmm. And I think Hearst has also done some skulls, isn't he? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, he's done some skulls. And I don't think there's any cleaner, more like terrifying image than a skull when you're in that moment of like pondering your own mortality. Very Hamlet, very Yorick. But there is that element of he's playing with that idea. Right. Because he, like, diamond-encrusted the skull. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it's just playing with the idea that, you know, the symbol of death. But we're going to glamorize it. We're, we're going to bejewel it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he does seem to be pretty hooked on the idea of confronting mortality. So in that way, he's moved art from being, it's moved from a religious statement to a political statement to a very human, universal Statement. He is very much an inheritor mm-hmm. of the ideas of the surrealist movement. Oh, absolutely. He is a fur teacup away from being invited to join. He's just waiting for Dolly to call him up on his lobster phone. <laughs> it's a really, really nice mental image I just had there. <laughs> you know, now we think of surrealist as, you know, Dolly and his melting clocks and your friend that has the tattoo of it. <laughs> Or it's hanging in their dorm room. Yeah. And like, you're like, is that a horse? What's the eyelash about? Surrealism was a very kind of anti-establishment movie. Very damn the man. Yeah. They were going against everything that art stood for. There's a great quote about it from the Manifesto of Surrealism by Andre Breton in 1924. And he said, there is every reason to believe that surrealism acts on the mind very much as drugs do. Like drugs, it creates a certain state of need and can push man to frightful revolts. Okay, so what you need to understand about surrealism is that it uses realism in that it's high detail or it incorporates articles from life that are already known. But it manipulates them in ways that defy physics, that defy expectation, and that manipulate the viewer into feeling disoriented by conflating, confabulating, and juxtaposing everyday life with what is impossible. So you might think of Dolly when you think of the really detailed, excellent technical paintings. Mm -hmm. And they're all tiny, by the way. They are. They're small. And so that is even more impressive. Or you can think of things like Duchamp, where he has the nude descending the staircase, and he's dissected the movement of a body in motion and painted that rather than actually painting the figure. Um, right, or he would take like a, a urinal. Yeah, the urinal. And I'm, he would just sign it. And he'd be like, this is art. And all he's just saying is, fuck you. Yeah. Establishment. 
Like, Here's a urinal. Put it in a museum. And you know what? They did. I've seen it. It's in the MoMA in San Francisco. It. But surrealism is easily understood as playful, which it's not. It's not pop art. That's a different movement. Warhol was not a surrealist. Hans was not a surrealist. Surrealism is something that it kind of violently defies expectation and tradition. Yeah, you were definitely supposed to be taken aback by it. I think every time we see Max Ernst's things in a museum, I kind of take a step back. I cringe a little. Yeah. And like even Magritte, I'm like, it's so shiny and cute and I just want to hug it. And then I'm like, ah, wait, he's making a statement. It's all about subtext. I would say surrealism is relies heavily on subtext and is always talking on two levels. And surrealism came about at a time where people were using photographs as well as painting to capture very much like very real life images and so we expect them to be true to life but they would manipulate them slightly so that it became disturbing yeah and i could think of like something that a lot of surrealists like to do is they'd have bisection mm-hmm. in their art and so someone that did that a lot with photography was man ray people that did it with paintings were like salvador dolly mm-hmm. or Max Ernst, mm-hmm. um, and he would do it with both. Or Magritte would do it as well. Right, where they're taking what should be a living f- figure, what looks so lifelike, what looks so real, and making life an impossibility by cutting it in half. That goes back to Damien Hirst. I mean, he's still doing that. Definitely. With sheep and tigers, sharks. Yes, Hirst is the meeting point of surrealism and pop art via Andy Warhol and his workshop. So we've talked about books. We've talked about music. We've talked about high art as in, you know, visual arts, painting and photography. I would offer that maybe there's another art we need to talk about. What is that? Murder. Murder is not art. Well, we're just going to have to agree to disagree because I have a quote from history that says it is. From history? From history. Just in general? No, it's actually from Thomas De Quincey. And it's from his essay, Murder Considered as One of the Fine Arts, from 1842. People begin to see that something more goes to the composition of a fine murder than two blockheads to kill and be killed. A knife, a purse, a dark lane. Design, gentlemen. Grouping, light, and shade poetry and sentiment are now deemed indispensable to attempts of this nature like Aeschylus and Milton of poetry like Michelangelo in painting he has carried his art to a point of colossal sublimity and as Mr. Wordsworth observed has in a manner created the taste by which he is to be enjoyed to sketch the history of art and to examine its principles critically now remains as a duty for the connoisseur. The Society of the Connoisseurs in Murder. What was he talking about? Murder. Just in general? Yeah. So where are you taking us to where art and murder is going to intersect? Hollywood. Like a movie? No. We talked about movies already. Yeah, not a movie. No, don't be ridiculous. I'm taking us to Hollywood 1947 to a little vacant lot in Los Angeles. You know where I'm going? Yes. (laughs) Where am I going, Jacob? This is the Black Dahlia murder. It is indeed the Black Dahlia murder. So I've always been fascinated with the Black Dahlia because it is one of the most murdery murders of all murdery murders. And by that I meant 
mean it takes more than a couple of blockheads, one to kill and one to be killed. It's a considerable amount of effort, and it is still unsolved, which is highly disturbing. Or is it? So I think to begin with, we need to discuss what was done to the Black Dahlia. Okay, so you said she was found in a vacant lot. Correct. The Black Dahlia, to begin with, was a woman named Elizabeth Short. And I think it's important to take a moment before we discuss this, as we're about to, and really acknowledge the fact that this actually is a real woman who lost her life. Because I think that that's one of the more disturbing things that happens when you fall down true crime rabbit holes, is to forget the victim. And Elizabeth Short was a 22-year-old woman who was out in Hollywood hoping for a big break. She was kind of Fallen on hard times, she would go on dates just to get a meal. She'd tag along as the third wheel with friends who were going out to eat. She's an incredibly beautiful woman, but really had some horrible luck. So that being said, what was done to her was horrendous. She was found in a vacant lot, as previously stated, by a mother and a young child who was about three years old in a stroller. And when they saw her body, they thought it must have been a disassembled mannequin. This sounds like a surrealist work of art already. Yeah, it wasn't a mannequin. Her body had been cut in half at the waist. It was bisected. It was bisected. And the interesting thing about that in and of itself is that none of the major organs had been cut or disturbed. So it was done skillfully. Yes. Which led a lot of people to believe that whoever had done this to her had to have been a, I mean, you know, you know where this is going. Taxidermist. It's never a taxidermist. It's always a surgeon, a surgeon or a butcher. I mean, those are the famous. Or a butler. (laughs) Never the butler, first of all. Okay, so describe the scene to me. Warning, graphic content. She'd been cut in half, and the top half of her body was a good foot away from the bottom half of her body. So already it was a very surreal scene, as you said. Her intestines were coiled and put neatly under her buttocks. Whoever did this is very concerned with the looks of things. She had contusions around her wrist and ankles. She was restrained before she was killed. And there was no evidence of strangulation, which led medical examiners at the time to believe that the torture had been conducted at least in part, while she was alive. Now, there is some evidence of perhaps blunt force trauma to the head. It seems from what is written in the original FBI files that the medical examiners believe that whatever torture was inflicted on her actually did cause her death. One of her breasts had been removed, along with a section of flesh on her thigh just above her knee, and that flesh, along with some grass, had been stuffed inside of her vagina. Her arms were angled and spread, and it looked like that they, that had been done after rigor had set in. Her legs were also spread. There were deep X's carved in the shoulders and some cuts kind of on her thighs. She had a letter B taped to her forehead. The corners of her mouth had been split. So the Glasgow smile. Yeah, like very Joker. Heath Ledger Joker. Not Jack Nicholson Joker. Maybe that too, but he he certainly had good reconstruction. The flesh on her pubic mound had been slashed multiple times, and there was also a large gaping wound in her abdomen that had kind of been splayed open. Her hair was still wet. It had been freshly shampooed, and her body was completely devoid of any kind of blood or fluid. That's crazy to me that that she was washed after this was done to her. Right, and they know that it was done 
after her body was mutilated because there were bristles that were found in the wound on her breast where her breast had been that looked like the bristles from a scrub brush. So someone had taken like a scrub brush and scrubbed her down thoroughly. All of the blood had been drained from her body and it was believed that she was raped post-mortem. So how'd they figure out who she was? Well, she was horribly disfigured. People could not look at this and recognize that this had been Elizabeth Short because... I mean, her face was mutilated. Her body was mutilated. One of the creepiest images from the entire case, aside from the autopsy photos and the crime scene photos, is this like really rudimentary reconstruction that was done in 1947. You can imagine what a photographic reconstruction would look like in 1947 that had to cover slits in the side of her mouth that went up to her ears. This is what this looked like. And this went out to the public. And someone was like, hey, that kind of looks like Beth. And wrote in, and then they were able to use her fingerprints to identify her because she'd previously worked on Air Force bases and had to be fingerprinted for that work. So after they had an ID, they realized this was this young, aspiring actress. And she was beautiful. I mean, like, originally in the write-ups, there were, like, teenage girl found. And she's 22. You know, she's not even 15, but she could be. Yeah, but then the Hearst papers got a hold of it. Hearst should not ever be allowed to write a word or Hearst papers because I know he wasn't personally doing it not ever be allowed to write a word about women ever let's just go with that let's just say that's true right like she was a last scene in like just a, a nice black suit mm-hmm. and it became a tight-fitting skirt and a sheer blouse of course as a sheer blouse is want to do led to rumors that she'd been a call girl right and that she was like an adventurous who prowled Hollywood Boulevard. How'd she get the name Black Dahlia? Eh, meh. Nobody's really like 110% sure. It was assigned by the newspapers after the murder, but people kind of suspect there was a Veronica Lake movie called The Blue Dahlia, which was kind of a film noir. That's what I've heard. Yeah, that that they pulled that. And then some people were like, no, no, no. It's because she wore dahlias in her hair that was black which she did. And some people are like, oh no, it's because she always wore black clothes and she was beautiful. And like, But nobody really knows, which I find that really fascinating that nobody can point to it. It inspired a media frenzy. A few days after the murder, one of the editors of the LA Times received this letter that's like, I'm concerned that the media coverage of the Black Dahlia murder is trailing off and I will send you some documents pertaining to this if you would please make sure to continue the coverage. So the next day they receive a package that has got like the classic, now classic tropey cutouts or newspapers, uh. you know, like the each letter individually cut out and put together. That's like Black Dahlia's belongings and they open it and it's like her birth certificate and her social security card and all these important documents. How the hell did this person get that? Well, it was a guy she'd stayed with. It also had a date book belonging to this guy in it. And it was a guy she'd stayed with for a little bit. Who yeah, but she, they still don't know who actually sent it. They don't know who sent it. But they also knew, like, everyone confessed to the crime? There were 50-plus confessions from men and women all over the area. And none of them seemed to be too legitimate. So, whatever that means. What, where is your mind state when you're like, oh, that pretty girl died. I did it. <laughs> it was me! And how were there 50 of them? I don't know. Yeah, it's not like one guy. And it's not like they were in the station and the police were like, we think you did it. And they're like, okay, fine. Just let me go home. You didn't. This is not Brendan Dassey we're talking about. So did they ever find the killer? Officially? No. 
But there's some serious consideration for one fellow in particular. Was he a taxidermist? No. Taxidermist to the stars. No. He wasn't a butcher either. Damn it. They always think it's a doctor. It was a doctor. It was Dr. George Hodel. And this came up because his son, which you know you were just like a five-star parent if your son is the one doing this. Does every son think that their dad's a serial killer? It's the second time that someone has believed that their father was the Black Dahlia Killer, by the way. What was the first one? It was a woman who wrote a book that claimed her father was oh. the Black Dahlia. And there's the recent book out by the guy from Baton Rouge. Yeah, or from who the- believes his dad is a Zodiac. Yeah, uh, apparently that's quite the thing to do, is to believe that your father was a serial killer. It would explain everything, looking back, right? Right? Yeah, but this guy's got some credentials. Yeah, he was a former Los Angeles police officer. He was a homicide detective. Yeah, that, yeah. So he's got some serious bona fides. But I think he's kind of jumped Damien Hirsch's shark, if you will. Because, like, he started out claiming his dad was a Black Dahlia killer. And I've read through the evidence and I'm like, yeah, I kind of buy that. But then now he's like, and he was also the Zodiac. And he was also responsible for these murders and probably this one too. And I'm like, you can't have all the murders. So was this just some son that just had some serious daddy issues? No, I think George Hodel was a pretty good suspect. Um, he was actually a suspect at the time of the murder. Yeah, so Hodel was originally investigated for the suspected murder of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding, in 1945. And she died by forced overdose of pills. And when they were about to arrest him, he ran to China. Of course he did. Scoundrel. And, yeah, and so that investigation was terminated. He came back. And he was a prime suspect for the Black Dahlia case in 2004. So this is after Steve Hodel's book, The Black Dahlia Avenger, came out. Which, by the way, good name, Steve. Good job. Well, that name comes from people that were writing into the newspaper. So whenever they found this case file in the LADA's office titled George Hodel, Black Dahlia File, they found that he had been bugged by the L.A. police. So ethical. Right, because they were worried about the death of his secretary and the death of um, the Black Dahlia, or Elizabeth Short. And right, in one of the DA tapes recorded him saying, suppose now I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. Ooh, look at that reasoning. Mm-hmm. So logical. You doctors. You murderous, murderous doctors. There's some interesting elements of Dr. Hodel's life. Right, and some interesting connections, intersections, bisections that we probably should spend some time exploring. So George Hodel was pretty much all around unsavory character. He was faced charges for molesting one of his daughters and was suspected of these two murders. So he's really not just Mr. Rogers. And there was an interesting book that came out by Mark Nelson and Sarah Hudson Bayless called The Exquisite Corpse. Oh, that's a game. Right. Yeah, that's a game that surrealists would play. They would take a piece of paper and they'd fold it into quarters and each one of them would draw part of a body on the quarter that they were given and then in the folding conceal their work as it was passed along to the next player. And when they opened it, it would have like this really absurd, silly figure drawing on it that might have leaves for ears or snowshoes for feet or things like that. The most famous of surrealists participated in this such as one famous one called Nude, and it was by Tenge, Miro, Morrissey, and Man Ray. That's a hell of a collection. 
And it's all in one piece of art. I wonder what that thing's worth, man. It has to be, I mean, like, four major artists contributed to its existence. Exactly. And they love this. It had elements of unpredictability, chance, and group collaboration, of course. But, I mean, why did they call this book that? I don't know. It's a really good question. I know the medical examiner said it was a fine corpse. Hell of a corpse. Well, there is a reason. And that's because Dr. Hodel was very involved with many, many surrealists. Right. Okay. Yes. He was big friends with people like Galka Shire, who is one of the Blue Four, who were people like Klee and Kandinsky and movers and shakers in the surrealist scene. And she took some of the family's favorite family photographs, as did another surrealist named Edmund Tesk. Uh, he took one of the boys, like to this day, one of their favorite pictures of them. And they lived in this home that was like very Frank Lloyd Wright kind of. It was done by his son. Yeah, Lloyd Wright. Right. 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 But, you know, beautiful, modern piece of architecture, just gorgeous home that these kids grew up in with their father, George Adele. And so his surrealist pals would hang out at this beacon of architecture. Right, and Man Ray also took photos of Hodel. You can look at those. Yeah, <laughs> and, and the family. And the family, yes. Um, so they were all very good friends. There's also like a book that's you can look at the inscription from Man Ray to Hodel. And even after he whisked himself away to Asia, he would commission work from Man Ray. Loved Man Ray. Crazy about him. Yeah, and so there is kind of this semi-loose connection that the authors make in this book between the presentation of the Black Dahlia. The staging is probably right. the word, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good word for it. Yeah. Along with the pretty damning evidence that Hedel was probably the murderer and his connection with this surrealist movement. It is a fine, fine rabbit hole. Fine rabbit to chase. To imagine how the images that are being created by these artists that he was heavily associated with might have inspired his own foray into the art world. And then a lot of people like to point at Marcel Duchamp's last work of art. Mm, what's that? And that is the Eton Dong. He started working on this around 1946, 1947. You don't say. And finished it right before he died. He died in 1968. Okay, so this is a long project. Right. He came back from Europe around the time of the Black Dahlia murders. Mm-hmm. So, without a doubt, he was inundated, as the rest of the country was, with news stories about this. He was also connected with... with that- Social circle. Right. So this installation is a tableau. And what it was was this giant wooden door. And you would look through a pair of peepholes and you would see a nude woman lying on her back with her face hidden, legs spread, holding a gas lamp in the air in one hand against a landscape backdrop. And the positioning of the body is very similar, although it's not bisected, to some of the images of the Black Dahlia crime scene. That's very interesting. In that criticism or that connection, there's really nothing to say that Hodel was inspired by this. If anything, it's the opposite. No, yeah, no, definitely. But is there any evidence to support the idea that Hodel would have emulating art 
by committing this murder and staging the body in this way. Well, all the art we've talked about, you know, just all the surrealist paintings and photography that really depicts this bisection of frequently women. So those are paintings like Magritte's Marshes of Summer or Dolly's Art of Radio, Man Ray's Minotaur that even has the arms bent at the same angle, Mm -hmm. Max Ernst's Anatomy of a Bride, The list goes on and on and on. But the authors are very clear to state they do not feel that any of these surrealist artists were actually involved in the murder. I guess that's fair. Why? I don't know. I mean, I think that the evidence is so against Dr. Hodel. Yeah. Okay, so like I said, Steve may have kind of gone a little off the rails in claiming that his dad was the Zodiac killer and that he's responsible for a string of murders leading up to the Black Dahlia, as well as maybe some murders in Cleveland, possibly Portland. Basically, any unsolved murder that involves any kind of staging or ritualistic communication, etc., Steve saying it happened. But man, I kind of have to believe that there is something to his initial claim. As crazy as I think some of the rest of it is. Well, especially with the L.A. police already thinking he was the main suspect. Right. And actually, a retired police commissioner said, I consider the case solved in response to the evidence that Steve's compiled against his father. And there are plenty of people that discredit this, of yeah, course. Yeah. Some people are like, nah, I don't know. It's crazy. But it's hard to think that it was... Just a story? And the author's even going to claim that maybe if it wasn't Hadell, it was a group of people kind of playing the game of exquisite corpse with an actual corpse. That's disturbing. So when we were working on this uh, episode, I kept thinking about this textbook that sat on my high school art teacher's shelf. And the title was, Art Creates, Man Creates Art. And it's this infinite loop. You could say it over and over again. Art creates, man creates, art creates, man creates. And I I think that there's something kind of poignant about that, even if I'm remembering my 15-year-old self thinking that. Yeah, there's no question that our humanity, the violence that's inherent in it, is part of us and always will be. And since we are the ones making art, then violence is going to come out through it. But then is art causing us to be violent as well i'd like to say that's just a story i don't know if that's just a story 